Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the story of three people, miles apart, searching for justice. And it starts on a day like any other, back in September 2018. Masia Mubarez was thinking about his children, all seven of them, back at home in Afghanistan. Masia was in Iran. I had gone to Iran for work because we were not financially well and I did not have a job that could feed my family. There he got his head down got on with work so that he could send the precious money he earned back to his wife and their four daughters and three sons in the centrally located region of Wardak in Afghanistan. But he often missed home and regularly found his thoughts returning to his kids. That particular day, the 23rd of September, a Sunday, he was thinking of them even more than usual. At 4am his phone had rung. On the end of the line, Tense and panicked came the voice of his wife, Amina. This was earlier than usual for their daily phone call, and Amina had worrying news. Soldiers were raiding their village, and they had come to their house. Some of them were speaking English. She told me that there was a raid. The soldiers had searched our home and also the neighbors' houses, that among them were people who were speaking English. Pashto and Persian. She affirmed to me that the soldiers had ordered my cousin that all cell phones must be switched off. I then insisted that she must not turn her phone off so I could call. Masia pleaded with her not to switch her phone off. He wanted to know what was happening. He would call again in a few hours and see how the family was, to check the children weren't too frightened. A few hours later, at 9am, he tried calling. No answer. He tried again and again. No one picked up. I thought it might be a signal problem as networks are blocked there fast. That's why I thought to wait until the next day and hope that I may reconnect with them. But unfortunately, the next day the call could not be made as much as I tried. Too worried to go to work, Masia stayed in his room, pacing, fearful. A day later, his phone rang. This could be Amina at last. But it wasn't his wife's voice that greeted him. 
A friend of mine from another village called and greeted me, asked if I had talked to my family in Afghanistan, to which I replied that I had not been able to reach them. He then said that a bomb had been dropped on my home. Not long after hanging up the phone with her husband, Amina had returned to their children to comfort them after the visit from the soldiers. Then, out of nowhere, a bomb fell from the sky, striking their house and killing everyone inside. In an instant, Messiah's entire family was wiped out. Alongside Amina and their seven children were four young cousins. The youngest child was four years old. But why? Where did the bomb come from? Who dropped it? It would take months, even years, to find out. I'm Maeve McLennigan. This is The Tip-Off. More than 4,000 miles away, in London, Jessica Perkis, security correspondent at the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, was sitting down at her desk to check her daily email alerts. Essentially, I turn up to work in the morning and my inbox is full of Google alerts of (laughs) drone strikes in the various countries we cover. It's some of these cases we can never verify and we go through a process of trying to verify those and sometimes we launch larger and long-term investigations on certain incidents where we want to dig a bit further. This was a daily part of Jess's routine. She reads about stories of strikes every day, meticulously noting details to build a picture of how and when these airstrikes happen. I've been working on this project for about three and a half years now. It's quite a frustrating job. Often we record lots of incidents of civilian casualties that we can't verify. We're working in quite remote areas with difficulties in access and two sets of military that aren't particularly transparent when it comes to civilian casualties. So finding answers is incredibly difficult. So really, the last three and a half years has been a frustrating three and a half years, never being able to provide the answers you want to provide. But there was something about this particular incident that stayed with Jess. It wasn't just the horror of so many children dying in one strike. There was something else different about the details coming out of the country. What really interested me in the case was the local press started to post videos of the event, which when you're dealing with quite remote areas in Afghanistan, it's quite hard to build up that visual evidence. And I started to believe it could be possible in this case when it hadn't been in the past three and a half years to get to the bottom of what happened. Jessica set herself a mission. She wanted to find out who was responsible for the airstrike on Messiah's family and why. How had their house become a target? But reporting on Afghanistan, a country that has been in conflict for so, so long, is easier said than done. Fortunately, Jess had a key ally, an Afghan journalist on the ground, someone ready and waiting to dig into the case. My name is Mohammed Jawad. My Western friends call me JD. JD worked for a German news wire service, as well as spending two days a week working for the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. But working as a journalist in Afghanistan is dangerous, extremely dangerous. You cannot travel freely everywhere because the Taliban may 
kill you or Islamic State may kill you. And there's always the fear of you get outside the house, there is a bomb, you're dead. But that doesn't just belong to journalists, that belongs to every civilian and every person living in Afghanistan. And beyond the threat of bombs or gunfire, there was also the danger that came from being a journalist and writing stories that might annoy the Taliban or even military leaders in the area. JD and Jess would speak regularly, down crackling Skype calls, discussing what to look into next. And when she mentioned the strike in Warduck, JD was all in. The first thing he wanted to do was make contact with Messia. But how do you do that? Especially when JD was in the relative safety of Kabul and he had no idea where Messia would be now. There is a method to actually reaching out to somebody. I knew that the case has happened and I knew that I had to find the person. I didn't know Masih's name in particular, but I did know the details of the case. So what I did was first I changed the date into the Afghan date because we have a different date than the Gregorian. Then the number of casualties that happened, the place it happened, the name of the village. The easiest thing to do is call the officials in the province. My method is first ask them. A family lost eight members and then there was four other members of another family that was really closely related to this family that had also lost their family members. And this was in Wardak and this was the date. Do you have any information in regards to that? And the official would tell me no or yes. And I would request if he or she could go back and ask and if I could call back. And if the official said, I'm sorry, this is all the information I had, then I went to another official. After many, many calls to different officials, JD found someone who could pass on Messiah's contact details. He was on the trail. After he'd heard the horrifying news of his family's death, Messiah had been lost. In a daze, he handed himself in to Iranian officials. He'd been working in the country illegally, so it wasn't just as simple as heading home. They sent him on his way, and he made it back to Afghanistan, and then to his hometown. My friends were waiting for me in the city. We started moving towards my village as soon as I arrived. We got to my dad's house after sunset. I could not go to my own home at the time as I could not dare to see it. No, I could not dare to see because there was so much destruction. So I did not have the courage to go. The next morning when I visited my house, there was nothing except for destruction. Damaged tires of my son's bicycle, which had broken apart. The dust, the rubble. There was nothing else. Messiah was looking for justice. He wanted to know who was responsible for the bomb. Was it the Taliban, the Afghan army, the US troops that were still active in the area? At first, local village elders had said they would help him call for answers. They would take the case to NATO, they said. But then weeks had passed and people had dropped away. They seemed to be forgetting about him. Soon, it was only Messiah left looking for answers. But then his phone rang. 
and it was JD on the other end. I uh, introduced myself and said I work for the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. Can we do stories about families that have lost loved ones and airstrikes or night raids operations by Afghan special forces or U.S. special forces? And we're trying to cover that. And if you could speak with us about what happened, if it was okay for me to keep in contact with him because we have a lot of research to do. And he was very nice and he was very cooperative. He said, I've spoken to media before, but this sounds like you are actually covering my story. And this would be really nice. Making a phone call like that is never easy. Well, you have to be very sympathetic first. You have to tell them factual things. You have to tell them what you're doing because, you know, you are sympathetic and you are you want the story out there. Therefore, you tell them the truth. This is what I do. This is who I am. And this is what I will do, hopefully, with your story while respecting your privacy. And if, if you don't want to speak to me, then it is okay. You don't have to. But I would really love for you to speak and for me to cover your stories. You have to be really careful and respectful of the cultures. You have to first pay your condolences, of course, and then respect the family. And then, with that respect, go ahead. Masih explained to JD he wanted answers. He had some photos and videos he'd taken of the destruction of his house. Blasted concrete, twisted metal carnage. He sent them to JD. I asked if he could send me the photos of the kids. And he sent me the photos of the deceased, those that had been killed, but only the kids. In Afghanistan, you have to be really careful. You can't ask for photos of daughters that are above 13 years old because the cultural sensitivity as well as the religious sensitivity towards adult females are high. He sent me the pictures that, you know, had their bodies... <sighs> laying there seven or eight of them and it was just back then i really didn't know what to ask so then jessica told me look we don't need the pictures of the deceased when they have been killed we need their pictures before they died and i was just into this investigative journalism thing and seeing those photos of course i've seen those scenes before not children i worked with military and i had seen people being killed in front of me, but uh, seeing photos of children dead is, is, is something else and actually having that experience. So then we got photos of them when they were alive and smiling faces is just um, excruciating, I would say. The two men kept talking and eventually JD proposed they meet in person. But how to do that posed a problem. It wasn't just as simple as JD hopping in a car and travelling out to meet Messiah near his home. Journalists, first of all, cannot travel freely out in Afghanistan, even though they don't pose a threat to the Taliban. They need specific permission from the Taliban to travel anywhere. Second of all, with my background of working with the US Army and Special Forces, there's no way that I could come back alive if I travel to the village where the strike happened. Instead, he had to wait until Monsieur travelled to Kabul. There, after their many phone conversations, the two men met at last. 
Back in London, Jess was waiting with bated breath for news of how the meeting had gone. As soon as it had finished, she was on the phone asking JD for details. I remember speaking to him after and he was really quite emotional. We had hired a cameraman to film that and, and the cameraman after texted me saying how emotionally damaged he'd been from that meeting because all three of them, I think, had ended up in tears by the end just by the sort of terrible situation that Monsieur was facing. And that's when I think... JD got particularly invested, and I also got invested reading the transcript. I have to wait a couple of days for it to be translated, and reading that transcript and sort of understanding what seemed to have had happened. But for us, the fact that Monsieur had lost his entire family was, of course, important, but it was known. And what we really wanted to do was find out who had done this and get some accountability in Afghanistan when really that rarely is accountability. And for Monsieur, this felt really important, this question of someone taking responsibility, getting answers and ultimately getting justice was of paramount importance. At that meeting, JD had done more than just interview Monsieur. The photos they had of the carnage were powerful and potentially really useful, but there was no way for them to fact-check where they had come from. And Monsieur wasn't 100% clear on the exact location of his home. We went on Google Earth and we tried to locate his house. But I guess we didn't locate it perfectly. But JD had a brainwave. He asked for Monsieur's phone and turned on the geolocation function. Now, next time you go home, you can take photos and we'll be able to see exactly where they are, he explained to Monsieur. I turned on uh, the geolocation on his phone and sent it back to Wardak, and then he sent us the photos and the videos. We got the location. So Jess and JD have the photos. With them, Jess can work with journalists at the New York Times, who have agreed to partner with the Bureau of Investigative Journalism on the story. The journalists there in New York use their open-source knowledge to find the exact spot where the strike has happened. And they really helped us geolocate Messiah's house and find it on the satellite imagery, and I think that was incredibly important when it comes to proving that a strike had hit the house itself. From the air, we were able to see not only the damage to the house itself, but we were able to identify the children's caves that were built on a hillside and had particularly high poles. And we were able to identify the nearby Taliban prison. So we got an understanding of the lay in the land, which really helped no end. So that was interesting. Could this strike have been meant for the Taliban prison? Or could it be that whoever dropped the bomb erroneously suspected the Taliban were staying in Messiah's house? All this time, Jess was coordinating journalists working on different continents, different time zones. And that doesn't come without challenges. It was very strange. I woke up and it's quite late in Afghanistan, but really early in the US. So you sort of end up working like all day and all night because different people are waking up at different times and you need to coordinate who's doing what, when. Jess and JD and the New York Times all kept going, following every lead they could to try and work out who had been behind the strike. And there was something in the images that Monsieur was sending that set them running in the right direction. We simply asked if there had been any pictures of weapons fragments and they sent through a picture that seemed to a layman just bits of rubble and bits of steel and nothing particularly of any interest. We went someone that was quite specialist actually and we said, can you make out any sense from this? And they said, well, we could build the bomb and work out what had happened. And I was like, hmm, okay, that seems difficult. Too difficult. 
But Jess kept talking to weapons experts, asking everyone she could think of whether there was anything in the images that gave any clue as to who the bomb belonged to. I had just this feeling that there was something I was missing. Time passed and she got on with her other work. But then, one day... I was sitting in the airport on my way to the US for work and then I got a message through from a weapons expert. He had spotted something in the photo, a tiny detail, but a crucial one. There was a four-pronged mark on one of the pieces and what that showed was the use of something called a JDAM, which essentially turns a dumb bomb into a smart bomb. And what was crucial about that piece of evidence was while the US military did use JDAMs, the Afghan military didn't have the capability to use them and those were the only two militaries deploying air power in Afghanistan at that time. We went and we double, triple checked everything, spoke to more weapons experts and ultimately they just didn't have the capability to use that. And that was that moment when I thought, we've done it, we've got it, we've proved it. So the bomb must have come from a US plane. But what were the Americans doing bombing a family's home, killing innocent children? Jess knew what she needed to do next. She needed to ask the Pentagon. But how on earth do you do that? More after this. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Jess and JD have analysed the photos Masir has been sending them, and they found evidence that the bomb that dropped on his house must have come from the US planes operating in the area. So now it's up to Jess to put those allegations to the US defence officials. And that's not easy. It's unbelievably infuriating. I think that's where lots of my frustration comes from, dealing with the US military on a daily basis. Sometimes they simply don't respond. Other times they do, and other times they're open to conversation, but I've found often I take them a civilian casualty allegation, I'm lucky to get a response back, even confirming they got that email, I'm then waiting weeks, possibly months, or I never get a response for them. It's that constant push, push that you have to apply pressure that can essentially ground you down. And getting any answer out of officials there seemed to be getting harder and harder. When I began this, I feel like I had a more positive dialogue with the US military when I joined the Bureau, you know, nearly four years ago now. And I think that dialogue 
has changed and I think it has become less transparent. And I think the US military, or at least those I'm communicating with Afghanistan, feel more able to not respond. And I don't know where that comes from. I don't know whether it's sort of a change in attitude towards journalists as a whole. I think that's entirely possible with the administration. You know, military transparency uh, goes up and down over the years. Jess wasn't going to take no for an answer. I contact the US spokesperson for the US military in Afghanistan or Resolute Support, which is the NATO mission. I contact them almost on a daily basis. But try as she might, there wasn't any easy answers coming. In fact, she kept getting told different things. The first response was we have no connections between our actions and allegations of civilian casualties. So that kind of spurred me on because I was like, well, you've carried out strikes then and you just don't see the connections. Then the second one was we carried out no strikes in that area. I believe by that point we were on our way to understanding that they were responsible. Then Jess brought out the proof, the evidence that a JDAM had been used. She put it to the Pentagon that this showed it must have been a US plane. We had a third response that was more similar to the first. Just as Jess was making the final preparations to get the story out, the US officials sent through a statement admitting they had bombed Messiah's house. And then a few days later, they added that American soldiers had reported being fired on from the building, that the strike was therefore in self-defence. But they still resolutely denied that they'd killed Messiah's family or any civilians. It was galling, but Jess couldn't wait any longer. After months of work, it was nearly time to publish the story. But one thing or other meant the publication date kept moving. I think I was feeling pretty crazy. The publication was being pushed back and the US military were changing their story and I was getting concerned that the story wasn't going to go out because obviously I felt a great amount of obligation to Messiah, but also JD, who had invested so much and cared so much about the story to ensure that it went out and did as well as possible. So in the last sort of week when the deadline kept getting pushed back, it was going to be published here, it was going to be published then. Sort of the disappointment when I had to relay that to both parties felt very immense. And so I think by the time it was published, I had gone a little bit mad and I was just absolutely relieved to see the final product. The New York Times did a great job putting together a video that sort of brought together the visual evidence and showed how we got to the bottom of this. The first thing I did, it took a while to get the printed paper. It was in the US edition of the New York Times in print. I got that sent over from the New York Times and that took about two months to arrive. And I sent it straight off to Afghanistan with a coffee for Messiah. In a weird way, it's very distant in the sense that Messiah and JD are both in Afghanistan in different provinces. I've never met JD, who I've worked with for the past year and a half. To get their reactions to the story felt incredibly important, particularly given that distance. The thing about Afghanistan is just this UNAMA report about civilian casualties, 1,000 killed, 2,000 killed. Those 2,000 killed leave 2,000 families across Afghanistan grieving. And there's nobody to put a name to those numbers. When finally this came, I was feeling accomplished that maybe 0.01% of the amount of people killed in Afghanistan is covered by me and maybe that does something to put the pain of the Afghan people out there about how much suffering goes through to the civilian population despite the wrong or the right of the war. 
As soon as he could, JD found Massa and showed him the story. I translated the article myself and I read to him and the feeling that I got was again a sense of accomplishment because I, I saw a tear or two in his eyes and this feeling that you know my story is out there and, and he thanked me again and again and I said look this is my job this is what I get paid for but I'm glad that your story is out there that you feel that now the people of the world know your story and that also brings some semblance of closure to you. At last, the truth had been uncovered. It had been a US bomb from a US plane that had struck Massa's house that day, killing his wife, his four daughters, three sons and four nieces and nephews. Eleven children wiped out in an instant. Here's Massa explaining to JD what it was like to see the article from the Bureau of Investigative Journalism and the New York Times. My hope and expectations from meeting journalists were that they would raise my voice to the world. I want to thank all those journalists, including you, my dears, who raised my voice. It had taken a remarkable feat of journalism to get the story out, tenacious reporting across borders. And yet, the publication of the story didn't feel like the end point. Jess and JD still carry the emotional toll of working on the investigation with them. I think it's something that stays with you. I think in Masir's case, actually in all cases, it's, it's the frustration that was really lingered with me and had quite a negative impact. But obviously in Masir's case, when you're looking at these pictures all the time and you're trying to unpick what happened, I think, you know, I still see his children. Sorry. <laughs> It's so silly. I still think, sorry, this is so ridiculous. I think there's a lot of guilt as well, because you're not there. I'm not JD. I'm not in Afghanistan. I'm not, you know, dodging danger every day. He's doing a lot of the hard, heavy work, and this is his life and where his family, family lives. You feel really close, and there's so much guilt attached with feeling close when you should feel distant and you don't have to put yourself in dangerous situations. It's not war journalism. You're not on the front line. And so legitimacy and the legitimacy of feeling sad is really difficult to find. JD too feels the emotional toll of his work. A lot of times when I cover stories that come close to home, a lot of people lose their loved ones here and we produce information to the world, but we ourselves are, I guess, pictured as these robots with, as you said, no emotion at all. But the emotion and the feelings take a toll as you go through it. My toughest day and reporting in the last more than four years has been this ambulance bombing in Kabul that had a lot of people dead. One of my colleagues even told me, like, why are you feeling this? It should be normal to you. It's like, People dead is not normal. Just because I'm reporting about it, just because I'm accurate about it, just because I'm neutral about it, doesn't mean I don't feel anything. Doesn't mean I don't hate the insurgents. Doesn't mean I don't condemn this. It's just that I can't put it out there. And just because I can't put it out there doesn't mean I don't feel anything and I'm just a robot out here. And it's not just the emotional toll that the journalists carry with them. 
both Jess and JD have continued to press the US government for a response, for them to take responsibility for what happened. And Messiah, well, he kept waiting. It really discourages me knowing the fact that the US denies involvement despite having all the information. They knew about my home before they dropped the bomb. They had searched my home. They have videos of the incident. They have all the information. However, their denial now brings me discouraged and tires me. All of this media coverage, evidence that they are responsible and they still deny is very discouraging. For months and months, there was nothing. No recognition, no response. This investigation that they said has been going has been going for over six months at this point. That's a long time. I don't understand with the amount of evidence we've brought to them how they can still be investigating. I think the audacity that we can present so much evidence and you still can't get them to take responsibility sort of drives me on. And also understanding that for Messiah that acknowledgement means an incredible amount. He's really working towards that acknowledgement. That is what he wants right now. That also means I want to wake up in the morning and send them an email or give them a call, even if it ends nowhere. <laughs> I, I hope there will be a resolution and I hope it's not going to be in the distant future. Whether the US military accepts responsibility or not won't bring the family back, but it will bring some accountability. Then, finally, earlier this year, a breakthrough. Jess had put in yet another of her regular requests, asking for an update, and finally something had changed. Officials now responded, telling Jess that they had at last looked into the strike and said it was possible, although unlikely, that there were US-caused casualties as a result of the airstrike. So now, at last, some recognition that a strike happened and that casualties could have occurred. But it was far from an apology and nothing that would bring Messiah's family back. And yet for Messiah, it was something to know that the death of his family had not gone unnoticed, that the US military had conceded that it could have been responsible. And it would never have happened without Jess's and JD's tenacious reporting and Messiah's continuous fight for the truth. That's all from this episode of The Tip-Off. Thanks so much to Messiah, Jess and JD for talking us through their emotional endeavours. We'll have another episode out for you soon. And this episode was made possible thanks to support from Charities Aid Foundation and the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. And we are so, so grateful, as always, to our patron supporters who are helping us make these episodes. If you want to join them, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash the tip off. This episode was edited by Alice Milliken and our theme music was by Dice Muse. Stay tuned for more stories behind the headlines. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.